0: Well, hello, everybody. Time for another installment of the side hustle. We haven't done one of these in a little while. I feel like it's been a month, but it's actually only been, uh, I don't even think it's been a full week. Since we've done one of these, but uh, as our good friend Mr. Rogers used to sing to us all the time, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, so why not get out here with some friends and tell some stories? Jimmy here alongside two Angelas, or what we call an Angela and a Jewel, so we don't confuse people, but I'm very excited about our guest today because, well, we've been talking to people that work in the event world, but this guy doesn't just have one job in the event world. He is a man of many hats and someone that I've worked alongside with, actually all three of us have worked alongside with for Quite some time, and I'm super excited about this because, man, the stories are going to be plentiful today. We have Tess Sewell joining us from what well, says Beverly Hills, California, on the screen. Are you in Beverly Hills, or are you in the 775
1: today, Tess? You know, I've uh, I've been sheltering in place in my mansion up here next to Quincy Jones' old place, but no, I'm in, I'm in Reno. The funniest thing is, you know, when I when I lived in in LA, I I got my first cell phone, and and it was pretty funny that. It just happened to have this 310 number, and and I didn't realize until, you know, many years, hence, when it came up on your caller ID that would actually say Beverly Hills, so people think I, I do much better than I actually do.
0: Hey, that's success. I still have the Orange County cell phone number as well. And it's funny because that area code 714, our area code here in Dallas is 214. So every time I have to enter my number in, people always assume that I said 214 and they just heard it wrong. I'm like, no, no, it's 714. And then I get this weird look and they say, well, where the heck is that? So Tess, you know, you've know, you been around a- this world for a long, long time and you have done many, many different things. As I said in the intro, you are a man of many hats Let's start this off from the very beginning. Talk to us about the path that brought you into the event world. How did this all start for you, and was this ever part of the plan from the get go or did you just randomly fall into this and just kind of make it up as you went along
1: <laughs> uh I think it's about the most nonlinear thing that ever happened when i actually i grew up I wanted to be an actor and i was I was in a band when I was really young, so actor slash musician, I guess. We did, you know, our our little punk band did okay back in the day, but we were really all too young to make that work. But it it wasn't until I I got into skiing, which is a pretty weird thing for a kid from Newcastle, England, to get into because it's hard to be further from anywhere you can actually ski. And that brought me eventually across to this side of the pond. And and I lived in, in Whistler in British Columbia for about eight years. Uh, and it was while I was in Whistler that, you know, around ski resorts there's a whole bunch of events that tend to go on. And, and I got involved in helping to put on first skiing events and then got into cycling and it all just, it all kind of exploded from there.
0: So that was the introduction. So you wanted to be an actor. What kind of, where did you th- what kind of acting were you looking to get into? Theater? Were you theater <laughs> hoping to make it on the big screen?
1: I, I knew you'd, you'd go back to the acting thing. It's, it's, I'm the, just curious because I had, had the same dream as well. But you know, here's, here's the, the funniest part about this is that you know, I, I loved acting. It was great. To me, uh, it, it was very easy. Like a lot of people find it hard to get out in front of people and perform or do public speaking, whatever it is. To me, it, it seems like a, a very natural state. So I was. I was kind of into it, but also, you know, I I did really well in school until I got to high school and I discovered rock and roll and girls, and that tended to take my uh, my academic uh, career into a bit of a slide. Uh, <laughs> but I was doing pretty well at this acting thing, so uh, despite my my uh, sliding grades, shall we say. And I wasn't doing bad. I actually stayed on at school. Into in, in England, we have a different system where at 16 you can leave high school and go out into the world. And if you so choose uh, and are qualified enough, you can stay on into what's called sixth form, which is two extra years of kind of uh, pre-university work, really. And it, you really you focus down very hard on subjects. So you know you go from doing a wide range of subjects in your high school class to you study basically three different things to get a an A level that would get you into university anyway there's a the long history of the the UK scholastic system for you but my drama teacher got me a an audition at a very very well-known school called the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London and there were basically three schools that you wanted to go to when you lived in England and this was one of them somehow he pulled some strings and I got to go down there. Well, because I kind of just, uh, what will I say? That's very English. I lollygagged my way to life at that time. I (laughs) took two of my buddies, loaded them up in my mom's car that I borrowed and I made the drive a few hundred miles down from Newcastle to London to go do this audition. And We were just three lads out on a jaunt. We were having the greatest time ever, but you know, acting was my passion. I was getting this chance and I was uh, supposed to prepare this, uh, this acting piece. It was a soliloquy from one of Shakespeare's plays. And quite honestly, I was, I was too busy down the pub to actually get round to it. So I show up at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And the most interesting part there is I go in and I'm in this, uh, it's kind of a locker room setting where you're getting prepared. And I'm with all of these other, other guys that are trying out for this. And I realize that I am just not like any of them. It's Just, I, I'm so different. They just, they aren't the kind of people that I like. And the more time I spend there during this day, the more I understand that there's absolutely no way I want to spend the next four years of my, what would be my university life with these human beings. So we you know we do the you know the usual you get together, and i have to uh I have to go into this room, and it's just like you see on on the t v when it's something like you know fame or you know pick any kind of theater dance movie whatever is you're on this stage by yourself, and there's this spotlight on you, and there's a dark auditorium with like three or four kind of you know shaded people that are looking at you and you know that, you know, they're the important ones that are now going to decide your fate. And I try, and I, I got to admit, I knew about, I don't know, five or six lines of this soliloquy. And so I started it a couple of times and then I just had to stop and say, look, I, I've got to be honest. I, I, I didn't rehearse this. I don't really know it. And they're very, they're very gracious and they're kind and they say, okay, well, let's not worry about this. It's all about the whole day and how, this all works and you interact. Well, the next thing is they get all of us, all the guys, all the girls together in this big room. And this guy who is, you know, he's got this puffed out chest and this crazy hairdo and this sweater. And you just know he's a theater guy. He says, okay, what you have to do here is you've got to show us how you can express yourself in any way. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. And he said, I want you to pretend that you're an amoeba. And I'm thinking an amoeba, <laughs> he wants me to pretend I'm a single cell organism. And I'm looking around and everybody else is just nodding like amoeba, the greatest opportunity ever. I'm like, could be a horse, anything else? Anyway. So he says amoeba and I'm thinking, I'm going to walk out of here, but then they start playing David Bowie. And I'm like, well, oh, I can amoeba to this. So I basically, you know, twitch and squelch my way back and forth across this room. And uh, I survived the amoeba process. But anyway, needless to say, I didn't get the call back, but I did have an absolutely fabulous weekend with my mates in London.
0: What What David Bowie song did they play for you to amoeba-ize yourself at?
1: i was i was trying to remember as i said i think it was ashes to ashes which was actually pretty it was pretty hip at the time but i you know i I can't be sure but you know you put on some bowie i can amoeba to it anyway that was that was almost the end of my uh, my acting career except i i worked with a group uh that eventually took me up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to perform, which is absolutely fantastic. And this time I was on my game. I'd actually learned the lines and, and I'd become friends with another actor. He had the lead role in this, uh, this play. It was, it was a Northeastern player in Newcastle where we're from called Francie Nickel. And it was about this, this woman and her boxer, uh, you know, her boxer beau. And I, I was playing his father and he was the boxer and we had this, you know, this great interaction, and we absolutely love this. We went to Edinburgh, and, you know, if you've ever been there, it's, it's really spectacular. There's a castle on a hill and this old town, and it's got all these little streets that you wander through. And we took to singing uh, kind of close harmony stuff, and we, we started singing. The first thing we sang was uh, Sloop John B., and we would just sing together. It's just something that we did, and we used to hang out a lot. Well, really interestingly enough, uh, he went on to become one of England's most beloved TV actors, a guy called Robson Green. Uh, and he made a TV series called Soldier, Soldier. And with the guy he was acting with on Soldier, Soldier, they actually started singing together. And they recorded Unchained Melody, which became the biggest selling single of the decade when it was released and was only knocked off the charts by Elton John's reimagining of Candle in the Wind when Princess Diana uh, passed away. But I saw the path to stardom. I just didn't take it. So how did you end up
0: transitioning to moving across the pond? I know you spent quite a bit of time living in Canada for a while before you ended up uh, moving to the United States. How, how did that all come to be?
1: Well, as my wife famously jokes, every one of my stories usually starts with a girl. Um, <laughs> and in Born this in particular either. case, uh, I was I was at college in Newcastle, and there was this American girl that was just, you know, a captivating soul. She drove a sob. I mean, how much more exotic could it get? Uh no, and I just said, this was my girlfriend. She was into skiing. I thought I got to get into skiing. So I got my ex-girlfriend to take me up to Scotland. We rented some skis and I just hurtled myself down the hill at Cairngorm, uh, which is basically like a bunch of farmer's fields with picket fences all joined together. They put the fences in to keep the snow in place. I don't know if they still do it to this day. They probably have much more sophisticated ways of doing things. But essentially you had to ski through a field to a gate at the bottom and get through the gate and then ski I mean, it's yeah it, it was pretty crazy but I fell in love with skiing and so at that point I was like well this is it I got to I got to get into skiing um and I could <laughs> this could be the longest story ever but anyway I end up coming over <laughs> to this side of the pond and through some contacts that I had back in the ski business in, I got myself into the ski business in England. I worked in London for a couple of years. Uh, I worked with my friends who were distributors for um, some American ski products. So I got some contacts. I came over and I was at the the ski show in um, Vegas. And I got in touch with Murray Merkley, who was a Canadian guy who's famed for his headwear. He used to make toques. And so Murray said oh i've got a good friend up in uh, whistler who you know i can get you in contact with and you go up there so when we end up in vancouver we're kind of hanging out there and i worked at this ski shop called Ski, which is a great place kind of a legendary ski store and and i got in touch with this woman she said well actually um i i need someone to run all of our our rental and repair shops and mountaintop stuff would you be interested and i'm like i would be very interested So I took a drive one June up to Whistler, met this woman, did the deal. And eight years later, I left Whistler.
0: So after that experience, where I first met you years down the road was in a role as a broadcaster. How did you, what was the process going from that working at a ski shop? How did you end up in the action sports world and racing world and end up finding your way to the path of becoming a television broadcaster.
1: You know, what's funny. And, you know, as a, as a fellow broadcaster, I don't know if you get this, but very often I I get uh, these college aged youth who will get in touch with me and they'll say, how did you get to be where you are now? How do you get to be a broadcaster? And I'm like, you know, it's, it's not like there was a plan. I didn't sit down and sketch this out on a whiteboard, <laughs> and it's like yes. but I'm sure they think that there's this canned idea that I have, but I know that if I want to make a billion dollars, like I probably should just invent this canned methodology that could get you through there, and you and I could become <laughs> the new Tony Robbinses of the so you want to be a broadcaster world, but it, it really started where there was a. I remember a race up on Blackcomb mountain and at some point, I don't know what happened, but I ended up getting on the mic and I was always a performer. So it wasn't odd to me. And I just started talking about stuff. And so then I started getting involved in more, uh, announcing stuff with these events. But at the same time, uh, on two completely parallel paths, my friends were asking me to help them, um, organize some events and, um, my great friend, Doug Perry, is a guy who started an event called the uh, Whistler Ski Festival, which became the Whistler Ski and Snowboard Festival, which is begat all of these crazy festivals that happen up in Whistler now. And when he was originally starting out, uh, it, it really was just about a bunch of ski instructors, you know, going through gates and who could pull the nicest parallel eights or something. It was a very technical event. It was the uh, technical ski thing. I forget what it was called. Anyway, but he asked me to help him out. Then it became the Whistler Ski Festival, and that was where I kind of started to cut my teeth on the real organization of events, and I found I had a, a fairly decent propensity for this kind of stuff, and it was because I, I was shockingly to me, became very detail oriented, and I remember we were doing a, a flyer or a poster for something, and I was obsessing over the blue color that we had on this stupid printed thing that we were doing, and I was like, why, am I, why do I care? But I, I was like that about all of these little details, and it drove me nuts. So we did ski events, and then I started to do some mountain bike events because mountain biking was really growing at that point um, everywhere, but especially up in Whistler because we had great terrain. And I got somehow introduced to the guys from Specialized who were producing a, a national series called the Cactus Cup. And the Cactus Cup was a, a, a multidiscipline, kind of weekend-long event where you did everything from slaloms to downhills, cross-country races, and they did criteriums, all mountain bike-based. And the specialized guys asked me if I'd, you know, somehow I was helping them out produce the first Cactus Cup in, uh, in Whistler. And it went off so incredibly well that they then invited me to travel with them to produce the Cactus Cup events throughout the country. Well, at the same time, it just so happened that I let, them, and somehow it came out that I could do some announcing, and so they're like, "Well, hey, you know, once we've got everything set up and it's running, could you just jump in with Peter and just kind of help out?" And so I worked with this guy uh, called Peter Graves, again, a kind of a, a legendary announcer in the ski and cycling space, and I jumped in the booth. That was the first time I'd kind of done this double dipping thing, where I was doing, you know, organization and setup of the event. But also getting to to be alongside, you know, what was to me one of the the greats in that sport and actually start talking and, and getting paid for that.
0: And that's why I asked that question, because like you were saying earlier, uh, you know, you get people that ask you all the time, like, and they want to know how did it all happen and they expect some sort of like long list of schools that you went to and different training seminars and all that. And for, at least on my experience in the action sports world, each one of us has a crazy and unique path to how all this happened and neither one of us planned for it. So I thought. I mean, I've been working alongside you in that capacity for a long, long time, and I've. Ne- I mean, I knew little nuggets of it, but I've never known the full story of how that actually came to be. So that's why I asked that because, like, that question pops up all the time. Like, if I tell you the story, you're not going to believe it. People just look at you at the end of it all, and they're like, "You lucky son of a bitch."
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the funniest thing is, I had never really. I didn't go out and and seek out these gigs, you know, as they became available. But I think what I learned. Is that you you can't be afraid to let go of what you've got um and you know worry about that it's going to be gone and and, and you know the example of this is um, when we were doing x games you know we we brought freestyle mode across to the x games back in uh, nineteen ninety nine San francisco mm-hmm. and you know it 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 was in its infancy and you know, they took a hand off, and people screamed. I mean, it was absolutely mental back then. Uh, but we always had a great team around us, and we we built up a team of people. And so, I think it was, man, maybe '04. I can't remember the exact year, but we were. We'd been rolling through. We'd done, a, you know, a good few years, and freestyle was growing and progressing, and and we were doing really well. we had a really solid production team on our side that were the sport organizers. And the TV broadcast for freestyle motocross was led by a guy called Jerry Bernardo um, and Cameron Steele. And we'd known Cameron since our early days of doing freestyle motocross back in, you know, 98. Well, Jerry was offered a great deal by another network to come in and do kind of It was like a global deal where he'd have, you know, 80 shows over the course of a year. So he decided he was going to take this gig, and it left this gap. And so the, the ESPN brass at the time were like, well, who can we get in that seat and, you know, make this broadcast work? And they were, you know, they were talking to some athletes, but the athletes at the time, it was so new. They were so young, and they were kind of like... You know everyone was still living there you know we're hard and we have tattoos and chicks and bikinis that was the kind of lifestyle and i think none of them wanted to be goofy enough to be the tv announcer because we you know we're, we're all a, just a bunch of goofy nerds really when it comes right down to it and that that kind of that need to be self-effacing i think wasn't part of where these athletes were at at the time and the guys who were producing the stuff on the ESPN side knew that I'd done a, you know, a bunch of different, you know, TV show stuff in the the feeder series that we had for the X games. So I literally just got asked, do you think you could do this? And my big concern was, well, if I'm sitting in that chair, who's down on the ground making everything run. And then I really thought, man, this stuff just kind of, for the, past couple of years, it just runs whether I'm there or not. It's just going to run because this team is so good. They know what they're doing. They probably do it better than I do. So, you know, I, I talked it out and everyone was like, yeah, I mean, let's, let's give it a go and see how it works. And quite honestly, I from that point. It was like, I didn't look back. I felt comfortable on all of these event weeks and weekends where you could, you know, get the ship sailing out onto the lake. And I could sit in that chair, and there's been a few times it's been a little tense, but for the most part, you know, you've got to be willing to have a great team that you just give the reins to at some point. Let them go and run and do their stuff. And it's, that's why you have to make sure you've always got good people around you.
0: Well, that's a good segue into uh, the next thing I was going to talk about the team that you have around you and the support group that you've built up over the years uh transitioning over to a little thing called the Red bull x fighters that you've been a part of forever and that particular uh show tour whatever you want to call it event uh has a lot of moving parts to it and not just from the broadcast side of that but having been behind the scenes of that for a long long time uh, a lot of people see that and they're like oh, okay you guys get to travel and you get to go to all these fun places but people have no idea the amount of work that goes into making something like that happen, the amount of prep that you have to do. And it's not just you flying into a you know, random country for the week and having the time of your life. There's so much that goes into that. There's so much moving parts and you've done that for so long yourself and the team that you've had around you. Let's talk about that a little bit from the beginning of that to how you got that to just sort of get to the point where everything was running super smooth and those things were going off without a hitch.
1: You know, it, it was really interesting. I was kind of—I was in this real transitional period at the time it all started. It was back in uh, in two thousand six, and uh, I'd been working with someone for a while, and things were going well. But I, I just—I I, kind of, for for various reasons, I, I won't go into. But I was—I was kind of coming into my own, and uh, I was discussing, you know, how my my life was going to proceed and it didn't quite go the way we thought. So I ended up with another great gig um, where I was producing a uh, a national ATV tour and a national snowmobile tour, uh, which is a whole other story in and of itself. But just about that same time, uh, my buddies who were working at Red Bull at the time, um, specifically uh, Dane Heron, who – you know we think of you know as the dirt guy who produced all our courses and everything but he actually used to be the motorsports manager for red bull at the time and dane heard on the grapevine that uh, red bull global the, the head office in austria was looking for somebody to help them with their x-fighters uh, project which at the time was held in a bullring in spain and they just started holding it in a bullring in mexico but it was the same format run by a spanish group So I met this woman called Uli Hartinger, who worked for Red Bull, and she said, this is the thing. We want to make it a bit different and make it more, uh, I think, relevant was the term they used. And I said, I'd love to give it a go. You know, I knew what X-Fighters was. It was a cool event. It always looked amazing. And so 2006, they asked me to take it on, and our first event that we produced uh, was in 2007, and that year we only went out of the bull rings one time. We had two bull ring events and then we had our third event, which was at Slain Castle in Ireland, and it was the first time that X fighters we produced a massive course. Uh and it was kind of crazy. It was like it was almost revolutionary because whenever we got a a a suggestion from a country and all these different Red Bull countries would get to throw their hat in the ring and say, you know, bring X fighters to us They'd, they'd give us this great, spectacular sight. Like, say, the Russians would say, come to St. Petersburg, we can do this event, and they'd show you this big palace. And then they'd do their artist rendition of the freestyle course in front of the palace. And it was just one big mound of dirt and, a, you know, three ramps going to it because that's all they knew at that time was what the bull ring looked like. But the reason there's one pile of dirt and three ramps and a bull ring is because that's all that fits there. So by doing slain, we kind of opened everybody's eyes to the possibility of what this thing could be with a with a massive course and and much more kind of course creativity in it. Well, from that point on in 2007, it meant that every single X Fighters that we wanted to do in a different country would involve at least one more likely two visits to the country and to the location before we'd produce the event. So from my perspective, that means I did an awful lot. You know, I do day trips to Dubai and day trips to Johannesburg. And it doesn't take a day to do a day trip. It takes you four days to go to Dubai and back. And I may be in country for 12 hours, and then I just turn around and go back home just to do a location check and make sure the place would work
0: yeah I mean that's insane because when I got involved with that program it wasn't until 2008 I want to say yeah 2008 when it was here in Fort Worth uh and I I I had done one that year I just did the announcing I flew in for the weekend and that was that I thought it was amazing and had no idea how much went on behind the scenes in that whole thing until a couple years later where I did two or three of them that year and then In 2013, when I jumped on board with you guys and was working behind the scenes as the judge's manager, that's when I really realized what you guys do. And essentially it's you and it was Angela and it was Jane. (laughs) And I was like, man, these are some big shoes to fill. And that's when I realized how much you actually fly back and forth. I mean, I guess I knew, but I never fully wrapped my head around it. People would always tell me like, man, you fly a lot. And I said, This is nothing. You should see my friend Tess and the mileage that this guy racks up in the span of a year. And how you do some of these trips where you, like you just said, where you're in country for 12 hours, I have no idea how you turn and burn like that and come back and then come home for a day. And then you're on a plane down to L.A. You know to go do a voiceover for something else and then come back home and have to wrap your head around the next bit of business for an upcoming X Fighters event. I mean, it's absolutely insane, not to mention the week when we were all in country together and all the moving parts to all of that.
1: You know, it's, it's really insane is I was, you know, we, we've we all spent this time uh, in, in captivity lately. And so I've been looking at various things and trying to find stuff. But I went into the the photos app on my on my computer. And it's really weird because I was looking for some specific stuff. And I go down to the photos app. And you're looking at each year and I just scroll through and, and it was really weird because I'm like oh here I am and I'm in oh, here I am I'm in Venice and I'm like oh wait then it said I was actually in Mexico City but that's only a week later and oh wait now I'm in São Paulo, and now I'm in Osaka and you just start following this arc of your life through these photographs and you look at the timeline and you're like this is insane right? why would anybody do this?
0: <laughs> you know I it's one of those things i guess that we're all going to look back on one day and just say wow that was insane but i mean would you go back and trade it for anything in the world
1: oh i, I when i think of the things that i got to do and the places that i got to be i mean our access to you know when we did the event at the pyramids in, in egypt and the fact that we were staying at a hotel basically right at the gate of the pyramid complex there in giza and this hotel was just amazing it used to be a palace from one of the uh the caliphs of uh, of egypt and you know we had to be hanging out in the pool and you look out your you look out your balcony and there's the great pyramid it was just i mean it was so insane and we'd get to work there and after they would closed the whole pyramids complex because it's actually a, a whole area that they closed it's massive at night we'd get to walk through the old kind of the ruins the city and go past the pyramid and it was just like you know just like walking through the neighborhood to the train station after a while it, it was so surreal that we got to do that you know and the same came when we did the event in in russia and we were we built a course right next to the wall of the kremlin in front of saint basil's cathedral which is that you know the onion domed church that everybody sees that was that was just where we were every day all day long you were there and you know watching the dignitaries go in and out of the Kremlin such a bizarre thing to have had that opportunity and to have so much access.
2: Well, I was going to say, so Tess, you, you have, you know, obviously the first time I, I met you, it was briefly, but it was in X games, 1999 and the energy. As soon as that first motorcycle came on that noise and the crowd packed on that pier in San Francisco, it was amazing. And that energy, that moment, that start of freestyle motocross at X Games and just the crowd, the action, all of that is really, I think, what we chase or what we've been chasing or what we've been trying to recreate and reproduce at our events. Um, You know, X Games moved to Philadelphia and you had Pastrana with the double backflip that stadium, First Union Center, was packed. Every staff person, every, I mean, that place was over capacity, and everybody was at a standstill, and the energy was insane when he pulled off that trick. And even working there, and all your hard work, and that moment, I mean, you, you can't capture it. You definitely remember it. It's, it's, uh, it's on film, but actually being there and having contributed to make X Games that year to have that event happen, it's pretty epic. And then to kind of continue and keep chasing that and creating that at X Fighters, at Straight Rhythm, at a Flutok, I mean, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what we're doing, but the events that then we've kind of chosen to work on or go down that path really, I think reflect that start of, you know, back at like 99 and X Games, or at least that's what, for me, really what made me kind of continue on the path. Because none of us, you're right, none of us started off thinking that this is gonna be a career, this is what we were gonna wanna do. But it was such an epic moment that I think that's what we've kind of chased for the rest of our career paths, pretty much, or at least that's for me.
1: Yeah, I'm very, very fortunate, and I understand this because I, have never done the same thing week to week, year to year for over 20 years. And I, it, it, it becomes a bit of a drug though. And that's kind of the problem is I, I'm always seeking out the new and the novel or trying to find ways to do things differently and maybe, you know, put a bit of fun in things too. It was always what we tried to do. We were lucky when we first started at X Games in 99 that Travis just, decided he wanted to go jump in the Bay Uh, (laughs) became a total shit show after he did it. But the fact that he did it and it was so different and it just, you know, that, that idea of doing things that are just nonlinear, it it appeals to me so much. And I I love getting the opportunity to do it. And although I know what we do collectively in producing these things uh, often is just a real grind and it's serious stuff because you know we we very often have the the responsibility of taking care of thousands of people tens of thousands of people and making sure that their their welfare is at the forefront of what we do and if we do it right they never notice it they just come in they have a great time and they go home but any chance that i get to inject just a little bit of fun or humor I, I really think it's important uh, even though sometimes I take it a bit too far.
0: Things about your personality is that no matter how bad it gets in the trenches is that you're always extremely even keeled and at the end of the day everybody knows that hey this still has to happen and it's just it, like Angela was saying it's that That adrenaline rush, it's that drive that no matter what's gone on that entire week and, you know, no matter, you know, you got a lot of differing personalities at those events you're dealing with, you know, athletes and their mechanics and sometimes their girlfriends or wives or family members and you've got, you know, some over the top personalities here and there and then there's also a culture clash in certain events just from between the staffers that are there. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that you know every country you go to, people just have a different way of doing things and a different way of communicating, and all of those things mixed in with some jet lag, and uh, some of the not so conducive sleeping conditions in some of these hotels, Jules. You know, it wears on you a little bit. But when you get to that main event, when the when the when the lights are rolling, the cameras are going. And the crowd's roaring and they start firing up those bikes. All of a sudden, it's just all of that just goes away and you just get this adrenaline rush and it is showtime. And it's just awesome because no matter what we've gone through at that event throughout the week and then afterwards, you know, we're just sort of back together again. All the smiles on our faces and no matter what we did or how tough it was, it's like, you want to do this again? And we're all just kind of like, yep, what's the next adventure?
1: You know, for me, there's a almost universally, there's a special moment at the end of an event that we've been producing. And and I I noticed it really for the first time, like I was conscious of it, even though I'd been doing it for a long time. When we produced our, our first freestyle motocross event at the Costa Mesa Speedway in California in 1998, you know, the event, I mean, everything was so new. It was, it was a, a crazy experience, but we finished the event. All the people went out And I walked back in, and I sat down on the landing hill, and it was nighttime, and the moisture was starting to come out of the ground, you know, when you were were nearing that dew point. And there was just such a a peace about that. And you find it at almost every event, when the event is done. So it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. whether we're having someone run through fire boards at the airport in San Bernardino, or (laughs) I'm sitting on the the side of the mountain in Vail after a snowboard contest there's the same moment after every event and I always try to isolate myself a little bit and just understand what happened the good and the bad and just you know I'm not being new agey about it but it's kind of like it's that kind of meditative giving thanks moment that's just being pervasive in my entire career I've always done it it's just it's just I don't think about doing it it's just organic in the way that that the event ends but it's at that point that you really kind of sit down just for a second and go man I how every time even though you might have done an event like 10 times it's like how did we pull that off
0: well that brings me to a point about a story that i'm going to ask you about and i've wondered about this and we've never actually talked about this before so going back to Uh something that angela said before about being in the moment so you get caught up in these moments no matter what you're doing, whether it's running the event or being a broadcaster working behind the scenes. So going back to when Travis Pastrana pulled off the double backflip at X games, you were in the booth, you were calling that live to television. So that's one of those moments the buildup to is like, you know, this is way before phone pits and everything else. I mean, it's make or break at that point. So I can't, even. I mean, I listened to you guys. I was on headset waiting for our event cause we were up right after you guys, but I can't imagine the buildup for that, wondering what was going to happen with the energy that was possibly going to be, or the way that you were possibly going to have to just take it a completely different direction if that didn't pan out so well. How in the world did you just kind of come down after that entire experience, after you guys were out of the booth and you took that headset off? I mean, you had to be just pumped full of adrenaline. What was the rest of that night like for you? Because the energy in that building was absolute insanity, and I, I mean, I had goosebumps and butterflies that lasted for another hour after that had already happened so what was that night like for you?
1: At the end of that night I was actually sitting on that landing when most of the people were cleared out of there it was just that that was a, a an insanely emotional roller coaster because again I was I was I was double dipping my gig right I was you know still in there and you kind of you're in that sport organizing role, and so you connect with all of these athletes. And I'd known Travis for a long, long time at that point, and he was talking about doing this, and they kind of had all this gear that he was wearing. You know, he'd armored himself up trying to protect for it, but you never really quite know if they're going to go through with it and what the, you know, what the result will be. But again, as as organizers and as broadcasters, you're always prepared because we deal with a lot of crazy stuff and it can end up really bad at any time. So we're always prepared for that. But in this particular instance, Travis, is he kind of exudes confidence. But on that night, he was just like, he was he was really afraid for himself. And so, you know, I left the, the field of play, went up, I'm in the booth. The worst possible thing happened is Travis's mom, Debbie Pastrana, was trying to avoid everybody and avoid all the cameras that were down on the floor. She came up to the concourse and cameron and i were sitting out just in the stands in the seats on a prepared area on the concourse as you know and debbie pastrana came and sat behind us as we're going through this process so we're talking about it and the lead up and everything and there's i mean debbie is like literally sitting down in like fetal position behind us and again i'd I'd known the pastrana family for so long and i was kind of every time we'd go off air into a commercial I was trying to talk to her and make sure she was okay and it was just a, a terrifying kind of moment because now it's like now we got to talk watch this guy do something crazy and his mom's behind this and what if it goes wrong like it was it was so insanely tense that when Travis pulls off that trick and I still remember it like I, it's right in front of me right now and I get goosebumps every time I talk about it He does the trick he lands it absolutely butters the landing i mean just two wheels down exactly at the same moment rides it out it's perfect everybody's going completely ballistic and the funniest thing as a broadcaster you'll appreciate i know we talked about this is at the time we had a producer we hadn't worked with before and he was saying layout he's like don't talk don't say anything we just want the crowd noise and he's like shouting, lay out, lay out, lay out. So that's all Cameron and I are hearing in our ear. And we're looking at each other and we're like, wait, why would we not be saying anything? Like we live in this world and someone's just done the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. We should be screaming and jumping up and down and going completely nuts. And he just kept saying to us, like, lay out and Eventually we look at each other and we just shake our heads and, and that's when Cameron comes in, he says, are you kidding me? And I say my, my, you know, my holy grail part about the double backflip. And it's really funny because every time you see, uh, you know, X games retrospective, like that comment is like, it's always there on that, that particular trick. And then the weird thing is I actually turned around, and I hadn't realized like halfway through the actual jump coming, like Debbie had disappeared, <laughs> and she shows up back down on the floor with her son, and everything is going great, and some guy in a big hat who jumped out of the audience runs up the hill, and we have no idea who he is, but like the 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 real kind of terror and the relief of that. And all the kind of machinations of what was going on in between it all is so weird. But like, again, it's like I, I can relive that any moment, anytime, anywhere. And it's still just amazing today as it was then.
0: Yeah, I mean, just thinking about it and hearing you tell your version of the story. I mean, I've got goosebumps just thinking about that night. But that entire night as a whole was just full of amazing things. Because then after that, you had the BMX best trick competition and Kevin Robinson did the first ever double flare. And then you had Sean white trying 1080s that night and skate I mean, it was just one level of insanity after another, but that particular moment. And I mean, as you said earlier, I mean, you, you're going into this with, you know, the live broadcast mindset and you're prepared, but you're prepared with that energy. But at the same time, I, to echo what you said, Travis did look nervous. I mean, you could see it in his eyes and the whole buildings standing up and the energy was just insane, but you know, there's that one little part of your brain that has to be reserved for the what if like and because you can't just sit there in shock and you know in the aftermath like you have to control you have to keep the you have to keep driving the bus so to speak you know if if the unthinkable were to happen
1: but well, you've got to remember that we we knew how hard just a backflip was and we knew the jeopardy that you were in if it went wrong we'd seen it you know if you remember Back to Philly when Kerry Hart was trying the backflip for the first time. Oh yeah, and his crash and, and being right there. You know, at that point, I wasn't in the booth. I was right down on the floor with his dad when Kerry just fell out of the sky and cratered himself. So we constantly seen the bad of what could happen in a backflip. The concept of doing two of them was it was so out of this world and just such an insane idea. Even Travis himself was, was you know, he was so gripped with fear. And that's unusual. If you know Travis Pastrana, that is not his. Exactly. His that's what made that lotus operandi.
0: Is because you saw a look in his eye that you've that I personally had never seen before.
1: Well, yeah, because you were dealing with it. it, it to do a double backflip, you've got to rotate so fast to get both, you know, both rotations in. Especially in those days when we. We've never really done this before, right? To to make those two rotations, but to time it to the point whereby you're coming out of that second rotation and your front wheel just clears the deck enough for your back wheel to set you down, but you don't over-rotate it too much because if you do that, then you're going to land on your back wheel and the bars are going to get ripped out of your hands and you go into the ground. If you under-rotate it, you don't go fast enough, that's even worse because then your front wheel digs in the ground and you're getting either augured into the ground with the bike behind you, or you're just getting flung off and usually your chest or, you know, somewhere in the front of you is going to impact those bars. I mean, there, God, there's just so many ways that thing could have gone wrong that, you know, it, the elation that everybody got, and the energy in that building that kind of just spun right out from that was, was amazing. I mean, it just, I, I I'd relive it again and again. I just, I would, I would definitely go through that because <laughs> the payoff was big enough to make it worth it.
0: And that's what's another thing that made that moment so magical was how perfect and clean that landing was. There wasn't one sketchy thing about it. I mean, he just put that thing down feather touch smooth and everyone just went nuts with a collective sigh of relief. And it was, I, it was amazing.
2: Yeah, and that's a good point. So we had Vanessa Anthes from X Games previously on an episode, and we talked about how difficult Philadelphia X Games was in general. Those two years <laughs> that we were there, the unions, the, the heat, oh, the just, the venue, it was one headache after another headache. And then, but it's all worth it. It was that moment there, again, you're right, I get goosebumps, I, I could still see it. I'm, I close my eyes and I'm back inside that arena. I hear the crowd, it was epic. And But it was such a freaking pain in the ass to get that event in pre- in show-ready form. Uh, it was but so much work. Everything
1: that we do is is like that every time because it's rare that you get this perfect venue that is just going to, you know, all the square pegs are going to fit in the square holes and the round pegs fit in the round holes. That's not what our life is. We are, where are the kids sitting on the floor with the biggest mallet possible, just trying to get pegs in holes. Doesn't matter which holes they go in. We just got to get the pegs in the holes. And that's what all of our event sites are like. I mean, it's, yes. it, it's crazy. But And again, it, the thing that I I don't think enough people get credit for is the end result, if we do everything right, is... The public, the attendee, they have such a fantastic time end to end their entire experience that, you know, that that's what we're striving for. And sometimes, you know, Philly being a great example, it's a it's a real uphill battle to get there.
0: So going back to X fighters here, what was give me one of your most challenging X fighter events and one of your most memorable, since we went down that little history trip with X Games and Travis and that double backflip. And I know Jules will probably weigh in on this. <laughs> this is this is my way of getting okay. Jules to talk on these podcasts. Just one? Well,
1: you can, you yeah. can go yeah. as
0: many as you want, Jules. Well, I just actually, want to hear no, from Jules, you. Anyway. you got
1: exactly. Yeah, let's, let's hear from Jules, what she thinks was her best event, and what the worst, start with the worst event. What was the worst?
3: Oh, gosh. I'm not sure what I would think was the worst. I'd probably have to say maybe Turkey just because we were already Uh, in country and then they decided not to let us do the venue. And then we had to try to figure out what to do with all these riders and their mechanics and their girlfriends and keep them entertained. While we figured out where we were going to move to maybe.
1: That's a good one.
3: What was, what would you say was the worst?
1: Uh, you know, I, the funniest thing is I'd kind of forgotten about Turkey because Turkey technically in the lexicon of x Spiders doesn't exist. Correct. Because we never actually had the event. But I, I, again, you know, you, you look at that, we had found the absolute perfect venue. Just, us oh, it was absolutely perfect. Beautiful castle. We're in this castle and... We built the course, we're ready to go, and I think, what, we were two days before the event? And it turned out that the guy that told us he owned the castle didn't actually own the castle, or didn't have the rights to have (laughs) events in the castle, or something. So we literally had to pivot and find a venue, and the venue we found was about a kilometer away. It was literally an open parking lot, um, just a dirt parking lot, and... Again, here we got the credit to the people that make these things happen. Our team got the dirt out of that castle a kilometer away, built a full freestyle course, built bleachers, built control towers, had every piece of the infrastructure in place on that night, and we told the people that it was going to be a free event and they could come in. We had 25,000 people come in to watch this event. And then I discovered a very interesting geographical fact about Turkey. Only about 40 kilometers wide, and on one side you've got, I think, is the Adriatic now. What is it, the Aegean or something? And on the other side, you've got the Black Sea on the way up to Russia. And because of that, it means you get an awful lot of wind that comes across the land. Therefore, the wind blew so bad that we basically just had no choice. We couldn't actually get the event working. And, you know, the guys were riding and they were kind of up in the air. Um, but we had to tell these fans that we weren't going to be able to hold a contest. And that was 25,000 very angry Turks. And I actually have one of my favorite pictures is taken by a photographer called Balash Gardi. And he took a picture of the exact moment that I am on the cell phone to the bosses on the control tower with everybody standing around me, looking at me and I'm making the call to cancel the event after however many millions have been spent. So yeah, Turkey, yeah, Turkey was pretty bad.
0: All right. So let's flip the coin and talk about one of the best ones for both of you guys.
3: Mm, I would have to say either South Africa or Osaka, but um, Osaka was a great event, but we just had the added, you know, emotional with um, Ego and all that. So I think that added to a, a different level to that one. Plus, we had pedal bikes that we got to ride to work every day. So that was pretty amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like Jules pedal biking to work from the from the hotel going into the... Castle Grounds in Osaka in her kimono,
0: so. Probably a good that, chance that your bike is still in the parking garage of that hotel, too. No,
1: it's at red-
3: in Tokyo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, a great event because, but like you say, not just the, the fact that we actually managed to pull that thing off despite the insane red tape of Japan and being on this Castle Grounds, a protected site. But because, you know, we just lost the Japanese writer Ego Sato, who was a big part in us actually getting to do that event. And he he passed away, you know, months before. Uh, but I think for me, the, the probably the number one, it's hard to say, honestly, because I mean, I did over 50 of these things. So uh, Slaying Castle, just even though it was the first real kind of outstanding event that we did outside of the bull rings, there was something about slain and the fact that we were Lord Henry's guests and the guy was such a nutcase. You know, that was a big one for me. It was actually, it was the first time I'd been back to the British Isles in, you know, eons. And, you know, our offices, we worked out of a castle, you know, it's so bizarre. You know, here we we are, like, you look out of the window of the castle and there's this freestyle course, this whole venue that we're building. Uh, And I've got, you know, I've got a billion stories from Slane and that, you know, they're all as entertaining as you would imagine working with Irish people would be.
0: Well, let's talk about another crazy event that you guys were both a part of a couple years back. The Russian X Challenge. (laughs) You, you knew you weren't getting out of getting Asked about that.
1: Oh, thanks, yeah.
3: Jimmy.
0: Yeah. Oh, come on! This is going to be this is podcast gold.
1: So now uh, <laughs> the the guy that had owned uh, the the agency that really helped us get the their permission from the Kremlin to do the X Fighters event in Moscow, um, he finds me in. Uh, I'm trying to remember if the first time he found me was at race of champions or at Madrid X fighters, but it doesn't matter. He came and found me. I knew this guy and I knew a lot of the the Russian uh, Red Bull guys. And anyway, he said, I've got this great idea. We've got the support of uh, the Russian government because they want to, you know, do something for youth. And we've got this military complex just outside of Moscow and they want to hold a version of the X games. What do you think? And my first answer actually is always yes. And then you can figure it out. So we go through this process. Uh, I uh, then get invited to go check it out. So I take a, a little trip over to uh, Moscow with my, my buddy Phil. And we check this place out. And it's legitimately tanks and guns and aircraft and a massive thing. And they've got this big field. They're going to produce uh, a space for us to do you know, rally cross and freestyle motocross—all this stuff. So great, right? Sounds fantastic. Let's go do this thing. Well, then of course we go out and we uh, we persuade, and I forget, Jules, you might remember. I forget how many athletes we had, but you know, hundred plus athletes, and we invite them all to come to Moscow. And we've got this hotel in the what's the the city of Odinsovo. and we've got buses and everything's organized and it all starts to kind of come together and everybody's getting in country. And that's when things are starting to go a bit sideways because the week before we all get there, we've got uh, uh Dane Heron and the guys from Cali ramp works are in, you know, in country. They're actually building everything. And they start to say that, you know, they're they're not getting their payments that they were supposed to get as part of the contract. And, they're talking to this, this guy, and he's saying, oh, you know, I, I'll get them to you. I'm just waiting for some money to come through the government. Long story short, the guy has come up with way bigger idea than his pockets can handle. The support from the army and the Russian government hasn't come through as he thought he would get. And so we are now literally all in country with all the athletes and we're in kind of we're in practice mode. We're in the practice days, and we realize this this guy doesn't have any money. So he's telling us he's got ways to get it, and he's going to figure this out. And you know we're dealing with all of the guys that work for him who are you know very friendly and they, they really want to do right by him. But so basically he says every day I'm going to you know I'll tell you guys dinner time we'll sort this whole thing out. And so. The group of us as organizers, you know, me, the uh, Rentworks guys, Dane from the Dirt side, we'd, we'd have our dinner, and this guy wouldn't show up. And then we'd retire to the bar, and we'd have uh, a couple of, of cocktails. Uh, this is where I found out that the Moscow Mule didn't come from Moscow. And I would just consistently ask the bartender for a mule, and he never thought it was funny. But... Uh, Anyway, every night we'd sit there after dinner and wait, and this guy would show up usually around midnight, and it was never good news. So we kind of have to decide what to do, and you know, we're talking about we're gonna probably have to pull this thing. Am I am I telling the story right so far? Because you've lived through it.
3: Yep. No, you're good. (laughs)
0: I'm just thinking about that poor kid's face at the bar when we tried to explain to him what a Moscow mule was or said just, (laughs) I guess you guys just call it a mule and he didn't get it and didn't find it entertaining.
1: But even the fact that I'd ask for it every night and it still wasn't entertaining. Anyway, I digress. So uh, we then decided, well, we're stuck here. What are we going to do? We we eventually got to the point whereby we realized he didn't have any money. Um, He... (laughs) Eventually, his money, everything, all the cards kept falling, and things weren't working. And then, at one point, we couldn't get the the buses, the tour buses that would drive all of us and all the athletes in. They were starting to dry up because the bus company wasn't getting paid. And so, we'd spend longer hours at I forget was it the Holiday Inn? I don't know what the hotel was, but anyway, we're we're at the hotel, and it turns out that right underneath our hotel is this crazy Russian karaoke bar. And they only take cash, but conveniently right next to the door of the karaoke bar is an ATM. So we then spend many a long night, all the athletes, all of us going down to the karaoke bar. And that's possibly some of the greatest fun ever spent in that bar, despite the insane stress that was going on uh, above ground.
0: The best part about it was the karaoke DJ didn't speak English. And the only way to communicate with him was via Google, Google translate.
1: (laughs) Which was a bit raw in those days.
0: It it worked. (laughs) The bartender spoke limited English and for whatever reason, they had an English karaoke book and then the Russian one.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting that we went through that and we, we made some friends and we made some not so friends in that bar, but. It was We were almost lulled into this false sense of security, but then, Jules, you'll probably remember uh, the day when they told you that they were probably going to cancel all of our return tickets.
3: Yes, I was highly afraid that I was going to get stuck in Russia, and I begged you not to leave me there.
1: <laughs> Which I never would. But, I mean, the thing is, you know, they were like – we know that this is going sideways, but don't let any of your guys leave because if the travel agency sees any of the tickets being used and they think we're all trying to run out, then they're going to just cancel all of the tickets. And we were like, well, no, we got return tickets like that bought. How can, but for some reason the way they were bought, the travel agency would have been able to cancel our tickets with, uh, you know, basically a minute's notice so we all sat down as as, you know our whole organizing group sat down so well what if we just figure out how to get everybody out of here we were trying to figure out do we rent like cars and buses and get to the border and moscow's a long way from any border by the way but you know can we just get some tickets and fly us to like the nearest european country but then you know your your visa might have stopped you i mean there were crazy crazy reasons why this was all bad so we looked at like what if we just had to buy those return tickets and it was like $150,000 worth of tickets that we were going to have to buy to get everybody out. So needless to say, there was, uh, there was a little bit of time there when we were all, uh, feeling pretty bleak. Uh, but I I think fortunately in the end, we all managed to escape and, uh, with all of our limbs intact too, which was quite a good thing.
0: <laughs> On that Friday, when they made the call about the, uh, about the travel agency threatening to cancel all the return tickets. And then the next day was a Saturday and it poured down rain all day. So everyone just kind of scattered. I ended up going into, uh, what was the promoter's little sidekick? Uh, I forget his am trying to think of his name. Nick. Yes. So Nick, Took myself, Brian Harper, Jeff Jewett, and Sarah Kindig from California Ramp Works, uh into m- Moscow City Center and we went to Red Square. And as soon as we got down there I, on the way, uh, the travel agency called Sarah yet again and said, Hey, we still haven't gotten our collateral on these tickets. We need to get this situation sorted out. So Sarah is trying to work this out with Nick and we get down there and we park and we sit down at this restaurant to have some lunch before we go sightseeing. And then Nick gets a phone call that says, I have to leave. I'll come find you guys later. My, tar- my car just got towed. So we literally finished our meal and just walked around sightseeing all day, thinking, this guy's never coming back to get us. He just got ditched in the Moscow city center. But lo and behold, he came back two and a half hours later. His car did actually get towed. He parked in the wrong spot. But we were convinced we just got dumped in the center of Moscow, and we were left to figure out our own way home.
1: Yeah, and the real shame of that thing was there was such a great opportunity, right? I mean, it was a a fantastic venue. He'd really, he'd spent the money on the front end to get things. I mean, (laughs) I've actually got a a video somewhere, um, certainly a photo of like the world's loneliest DJ. And there was a DJ on that massive stage and he literally played like a full set to no one. I mean, just no one. The guy just played.
0: I mean, the silver lining and all that was, I mean, we still kind of had an event on that Sunday. It was basically just a glorified demo, but there were actual people in the venue, and a lot of the athletes that were still there that didn't just dip out to go into the city center did actually participate in that. I've Going back the other day and looking at some photos, I was laughing because there we were sitting on, I mean, rows of tanks and artillery and whatnot, eating cotton candy and watching people ride the mega ramp.
1: No, the the silver lining. We had ice cream on a tank. I mean, (laughs) where do you get to do that?
0: Where do you get to have bleachers that are built around an intercontinental ballistic missile? (laughs) All I remember
3: is Tess invited me for that ice cream on that tank, and I showed up, and it was gone already. Between the two of you, I don't know who ate it.
1: Snooze you lose, I think, is what you learned there.
3: (laughs) I did enjoy the show, though, from the tank. I don't think I could ever say that again.
0: After all that, we snubbed jewels on our ice cream in Moscow. We are animals. Um, here's another project I want to talk about. And this is a, a bit of a different event, but it still falls under the umbrella of producing event. Let's talk about the birth of your annual holiday party known as Singing in Syrah. Oh, man. Oh, this is a good one. Well, and it's
1: relevant it's an event it's a production well i I live in this in this uh well odd for me community up here in reno i I was uh very fortunate that when the market hit bottom back in whenever it was twenty ten oh nine something like that uh I was in the situation to buy a house that was way above my means, so I now live in this very nice community um And the funny part about this community is is most of our neighbors when we moved in here that we got to know were, you know, these were people all in their 60s and 70s and they were all successful and, you know, had retired from their company, you know, from Boeing and, you know, big companies they built. But it became a very kind of entertaining, uh, an entertaining crowd and a super entertaining culture. And they would invite us to these events. and, And I came back jet-lagged is all hell from who knows where. Just pick a place. Africa, Europe. And I go to a party at one of our friends' places. It's called Pizza and Pinot. And basically what they're doing is they've got homemade pizzas and they've got various Pinot Noirs to pair with them. And you know, you were drinking the Pinot Noirs out of like brown paper bags and you had to rate them while you were eating pizza, which is sounds quite lovely and decadent, but everybody knew that I had this karaoke system. I used to have this cool Japanese limited edition gold CDG system for karaoke, right? So you, you put the CDs in that had like a, a three CD slot and it was just like, it was awesome because I like karaoke. So everyone, you know, when we would go to a function was always joking, have a, you know, a party at your place and do some karaoke. In. I never really wanted to do it, but, Anyway, I had a few too many pinos that night. And so someone came up to me and said, hey, when are you going to have one of those karaoke parties? And I'm like, we're going to do it this year. We're going to call it karaoke and cabernet. And then unfortunately, what I learned about, you know, these you know retired people is that there's not a lot going on, so they don't forget things. So they would constantly bug me and bug Gabby about, you know, well, you you guys said you're going to do this. So we came up with an idea for uh, our annual Christmas and we called it singing and Syrah. And we literally, uh, with the, the help of you guys, thank you, Jules and Jimmy and some others that came in, we, we basically took all the furniture out of our house and rented some, Bar furniture, high tables, a bar to go in the corner. And our guest list, I forget the first year, it probably had about 120 people that uh, came to our house. And it, they literally brought, like, that first year, they all brought great bottles of wine. They brought, you know, these nice bottles of Syrah. We had, like, 100 bottles of wine on our kitchen counter. And it was absolutely crazy. We a friend, uh, Lillian, in from who she does you know the karaoke DJ thing she came in and it was an absolutely like rip-roaring party where everybody I think got a little too carried away Uh, I eventually fell asleep in the laundry room and the thing raged till like 5 a.m. and until last year when we actually canceled it 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 was a an annual tradition now talk about the cooking Jimmy
0: I have just say this thing's taken on a life of its own because uh, was it year three? There's a stage involved now. There was an ice sculpture one year. I mean, the sheer amount of electronics that go into this entire thing. I mean, you've turned into your own graphics department.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we have like, we have a logo for it. We have gobos, you know, shining at the front door. And when you come in, uh, you know, I, I never did quite get the smoke machine going, but we put a tent on our back deck and then we actually heat the tent. Uh, like you say, one year, a couple of the guests, uh, they, they got an ice sculpture brought over that actually became a shot luge. And so they brought over the ski with the shot glasses on. It. And you got, again, these are retired people in their seventies that, you know, Basically, propagate a lot of the wildness that goes on. So it was, there were these two guys just literally standing out there all night, just making people do shots of Jaeger and whatever. So it's a you could say it's a it's a fairly buoyant crowd. Unfortunately, the the, the post-party cleanup and the 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 devastation afterwards. That uh, that became a little bit much to take, and I think eventually after a few years, which tends to happen in a lot of cases with almost any event, is I think people started taking it a bit for granted and didn't realize that they were coming over to our house where we actually had to live after the party. So it's on a bit of a hiatus right now.
0: <laughs> That's what was so crazy about the last one was that you had gotten new carpets in the living room, so this time everything just went out everything was gone and there were, and we put Visqueen down on the floor. And then in addition to the high top cocktail tables in the bar, you actually rented a parquet dance floor. <laughs> so the entire living room was completely protected wall to wall at that point. I was like, we've come full circle now. There's not one stitch of furniture that belongs in the living room that is currently in here. It was all stage dance floor and cocktail tables. And food display and the bar
1: it's all great until you know you wake up the next morning and you try to get your house back.
0: It is quite the process
1: so we'll, we'll see we'll see if we if we want to do this one again we'll uh you know when you produce things for a living, sometimes you don't want to come home for Christmas and have to produce another event.
3: Speaking of William uh, oh, yeah. and karaoke, are we uh, bringing Tess Mecula back? Oh, I saw you posted the other day about it.
1: You know that was that was one of the <laughs> that was one of the greatest nights that accidentally happened. Uh, I'd agree. Know, I agree. My my penchant for karaoke, we were we were actually um, we were in the testing phase of Travis Pastrana's rally jump when he jumped in Long Beach from a ramp onto a landing on a barge back in, I forget what year that was, 2009, something like that. And there was a, a a great, this is actually where we met Lillian who then would come up and, and do the party at our house. But there's a bar called Texas Lills. And I think on Wednesdays or whatever random day it was, they'd have karaoke there and we got to know all the bar staff there. And so we'd, we'd go in there and have dinner. And this night, uh, We'd been going in and out for quite a while. Uh, we had the, the show that we did was called New Year No Limits, and it aired on ESPN. And so we actually had the ESPN executives and some of the team in uh, with uh, Marcellus Wiley, the ex-football player who was broadcasting at the time. They'd come to watch Travis practice, and then, you know, they were building a, a piece uh, to lead into the show. So they were all out. We're in Temecula, and we arranged that night. We're like, we're going to do this. We're all going to go to karaoke. So we've got all our course builders and our crew and the ESPN gang. Just We're all going out. Well, I don't know who comes up with this idea. You might remember Jules, but for some reason, <laughs> I, I forget how the test thing happened. But our buddy Jason produces these shirts that say, vote tests for mayor of Test and it's a picture of me actually from uh, an X Fighters in in Calgary in Canada, sitting next to a table of let's call them used drinks glasses. Uh, so we we organize this thing. We're all going to go out. Everybody gets these T-shirts, and Travis finds out at the end of the day that he has to do a 6 a.m. live radio show in downtown Los Angeles the next morning. So Travis is going to have to leave that night and go and stay at a hotel in downtown LA. And he's absolutely crushed that he's not going to get to come to this this night. Uh, The night turned out to be epic. Uh, As you can imagine, a bunch of people wandering around in these T-shirts and me as the candidate. And people actually fully believed that I was running for mayor of Temecula. And, you know, they'd come up and ask me, you know, you know, what I was standing on, what I believed in. And the, the crazy part is you know, I'd go out and I'd shout out a song and they'd come up and be like, man, I'm voting for you. So, yeah. could <laughs> Mecula. I could've, that could have been my run. I could have gone all the way up to governor.
0: See, we keep talking about all the many hats you wear. Here you go. It's your foray into
1: politics. Isn't it? Yeah. There you go. Could be a thing. Could be a thing. Vote for me maybe 2024. Be ready.
0: So I've got one more side of the event world to talk to you about before we wrap things up. Um, You are now part owner of a company that is actually behind the scenes producing a wide variety of events. We had uh, your partner in crime on that endeavor. Eric was on the show last week, early last week, if I'm not mistaken. So let's talk about Let's get your side of the story on States and Kingdom and how that all came to be and uh, the wide range of events that you guys produce.
1: Does he say bad things about me?
0: You'll have to listen to the show, sir.
1: <laughs> you know, the funniest part about it is I- I'd, known, I'd known Eric for a long time because of the X Games stuff. Um, and we actually started working together uh, with – when he was the he was the head of an event called the Great Outdoor Games, and we did uh, an event there with I was running the a t v tour at the time, so we did this a t v event which just fit in with the whole hunt and shoot and fishing thing that was the great outdoor games, which was kind of like kind of backwards version of the x games for want of a better term if you don't know what it is anyway, so <laughs> we'd known each other for a long time, and when it came to do these events for Red Bull I'd been doing a bunch of stuff for Red Bull uh Eric had been doing a, a lot of production with his own company for Red Bull which was was called Blue 3 so he'd he'd done a lot of the consumer facing events the the flytoggs and and soap boxes and so it came time to do this first kind of big uh stunt event on New Year's Eve uh in the relationship with ESPN it was originally called the Red Bull experiment and uh Robbie Madison was the guy to do it, and they used both Eric and I because we both came from slightly, you know, different directions in in the way we produce things. And so certainly more on the sports side, I would be uh, I would have been the stronger candidate. Whereas on the actual production side, you know, Eric could figure out every single nut and bolt. So we started working on these things, and we did them for. God, I forget how many years, probably six years or so as, as two independent companies working together. And it, it's kind of funny because through, you know, whatever the circumstance was, Eric got a little bit down on the whole event production world. And, you know, we, we both live in Reno and, and he's a friend and we were, we were kind of chatting about this and I'm like, well, you know what? Don't give up on this. Let's, let's do what we've kind of been talking about and let's let's put a company together and actually go out there and and get these gigs. And, you know, we're good at this. Why don't we kind of keep going forward and seeing what contracts we can get? So Eric's like, yeah, this is kind of good. And he's like, you know, this is kind of interesting because I'm from, I'm from the States and you're from England. We're doing this whole thing. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, so, you know, we, should think about that it's probably like a good name of like some old like treaty or accord between the two countries so we could you know come up with a cool name because we've got an English guy and an American guy working on these things I'm like yeah yeah that's good but it turns out that all of the treaties and all of the agreements and everything between England and the UK are just shit names so (laughs) I go off on my tangent and I'm like well what if we call it tomato tomato and i think eric just kind of looked at me sideways and i was like you know because english and american then i went online and i realized that all versions of you know tomato tomato or twotomatoes.com it was all gone and if you don't have a good url you're kind of screwed and i said well you know what is interesting is we finally united our companies and you're from the united states and i'm from the united kingdom why don't we just call it States and Kingdom? And we're like, yeah, it's a great name. I'm like, oh, but that URL has to be gone. There's no way that would exist. It's it's so good. It has to be gone. Turns out it wasn't. There's a a band called States and Kingdom. No, State and Kingdoms. And there's a States and Kingdom. There's there's various versions of it, but ours was there. So we agreed it's going to be called States and Kingdom because we've united. And we started basically right out of the gate. We got a whole bunch of great gigs. We, we continued doing, you know, a lot of these kind of feats. And what I always say is, if someone has a crazy idea, we usually get the call first. And, you know, it's everything from, can we get someone to ride through 13 walls of fire to can we have a rally car jump the Great Wall of China? And our answer is always yes, and then we'll figure out how to do it. And we've had a pretty good record so far. I think we're, what, seven years in right now?
0: I think so. So moving forward, what do you guys have on the books looking towards the future once we get out of this whole shelter in place and this whole coronavirus mess that we're currently experiencing what's what do things look like moving forward for you guys on the
1: states and kingdom docket well i think that if you look at what's potentially out there for us is like you know we've been doing a lot of those kind of uh the feats that the extension of what used to be new year no limits we started doing with with the nitro circus gang and that certainly turned out well and we had you know there's a ton of ideas that we haven't even you know begun to produce yet uh, we have another as yet confidential project with uh, with Red Bull that we want to push ahead. You know, plus you know we've got the the Cooled event, the the air cooled Porsche gathering that we started producing last year. We found a new venue out of California, and uh, that one right now we've got postponed until later in the year, but it's going to be in uh, Durham, North Carolina, uh, and it's just. know there's a bunch of things like that that keep coming to us and you know even though we've been kind of in isolation we've been on conference calls pretty much every day and you know it's we, we get we get calls you know sometimes weird calls all the time i mean and you really do just have to kind of say yes and then then noodle a little bit where it'll go and what it become you know very often people don't understand how hard it is to produce what they're actually asking and if they have an idea of how hard it is, they almost certainly don't understand how expensive it's going to be. And we're, uh, by this point, we're pretty good at being able to come up with a uh, a baseline project budget for what it'll cost you to do, whatever your crazy idea is.
0: Well, I'm going to steal a line from you that you say often is that you are in the solution business, sir. So this is what you do. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, yeah. And the funniest, we were, we were going back to wait earlier, probably five hours ago, because I feel like I've been talking forever, but when things go wrong at these events, you know, and, and it's, you know, the wind's blowing or somebody's hurt or somebody's lost, or it's funny that I get very pragmatic at those moments And my question is always the same is, I understand what the problem is, but we can't change it now. What is the solution? And I know that I'm surrounded by brilliant people. And one of those people will have a solution if they just kind of give themselves a headspace to think about it. You know, and that's going back to the value of having a great team around you when you do these things and having faith in just letting them do their thing. Because, that's when you succeed in the solutions business.
0: That's almost verbatim what your uh, counterpart said last week. He said "Having letting people do their thing and having the faith in them to get the job done.
1: Well, you know why? <laughs> Just uh, the funniest thing about Eric and I is, you know, it, Eric does uh, from a, whatever you want to call it, the clerical perspective, someone's got to make those books balance and make sure that, the permits are done and the contracts are signed. And so we're on site. Eric might spend quite a bit of time actually sitting in our on-site office, but he's on the phone and he's talking to the client. And we're doing a lot of stuff, right? But I remember when we did Port- Portland Flugtag, Tag, everything was going absolutely fine in the build-up, and everyone was doing just a great job. But one day Eric and I decide we should go out and show our faces and show that we're these old guys, but we've still got it. And so we have to put in just a rope line across the front of this natural amphitheater by the Willamette River. So we take out the tea stakes and we take out the steak pounder and we decide to put in this rope line. And so Eric and I go out and we start like just pounding those tea stakes. Now, I've probably pounded a million tea stakes in my event career, but we're doing this. (laughs) We both look at each other. God, This hurts. Plus, what we don't realize is this natural amphitheater is actually just built of a bunch of like poured riprap and other rocks just underneath a little bit of turf. So we're literally trying to pound tea stakes through this rock. But we, as we do it, it's funny because all of our crew just start looking at us and they're all like, look, I I guarantee they're all shaking their heads. And eventually everybody kind of starts coming down to where we are and they're like, can, can we help guys? Well, no, we got this, you know, we're about five stakes in now. And eventually they're like, no, we, we, we could do that. And eventually we just kind of give up and just handed over because we realized that us doing that was more counterproductive because everyone stopped just to like figure out what these two idiots were doing when they'd be completely safe and useful in the office across campus. So
2: I remember that because it was, yeah, it's like, um, it was a spectacle to watch you guys. I mean, it was a great break for our work crew that was out there doing stuff because we were like, what the hell is going on? What are those two up to? And we thought, you know, our first thing is like, whoa, were we supposed to do that? Was that supposed to be on our radar? Did we miss something? Did we not do something correctly? That's our first, that was the the initial thought process. And then it was like, and, and I, this was probably a Brett Taylor thing, but he was like, no, those two knuckleheads are just decided they needed to do something. So, um and then it would be time for us to kind of step in and take over because
1: <laughs> I, I think there's the there's the your mind version and the our mind version we're walking out there and i think we kind of think you know we got the stakes and we got the steak pounder like on a and we we feel kind of like you know like derek zoolander with his jackhammer you know we're just like strutting out there like yeah we still got it but you know Three stakes later, everyone's like, oh man, we're going to have to call in the medics where it's going to be like somebody's going to have to do a report for these guys. Anyway, we, <laughs> we know we, we know we can't do this event without just an awesome crew. So, but every now and again, we we try to show we still got it.
0: Well, wrapping things up, it's gratuitous plug time. Tell us where we can find you and find out what you've got going on coming up in the future, both on your broadcasting level, as well as stuff coming up for States and Kingdom in the future?
1: Well, I think the most wonderful place to always go is our as yet unupdated site, statesandkingdom.com, because uh, that's kind of, that's where the passion and the fun is these days, Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe we'll finally get around to updating it with events that we've done in the last 10 years, instead of just resting on our old laurels, but JasonKingdom.com to see how goofy Eric and I were when we were young.
0: (laughs) Angela, Jules, final thoughts?
3: No, it's just great hearing from you, Tess. Uh, Good to reminisce about some of those old events that we did and realize how much fun we had and how I kind of miss it right now and wish we had it.
0: Amen. Yeah, same. It's been an interesting journey over the years, whether it's doing – the tv work or whether it's behind the scenes producing events or out there with the steak pounder getting down dirty at some of these events it's it's never been boring and it's always been an adventure whether we're in the middle of a field in wisconsin or whether we're in some exotic rainforest in brazil or wherever we may end up it's it's definitely been an interesting journey oh and i even left out in your kitchen having a holiday karaoke party as well so that falls under the the uh, list of locations. But uh, looking back on all the good times, I would not trade it for the world. And it has been an awesome experience. And it's been a journey today as well, reliving some of this and hearing your story about uh, the beginnings of all this. And again, the whole point behind a lot of this is learning things about our, our friends and our coworkers that we might not have known. So I learned some new things about you today in the process.
1: Well, thanks, guys. Massive thanks to Ange for coming up with this idea and putting it all together. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you all face-to-face very, very soon. So stay stay safe out there and uh, don't hug any strangers.
0: (laughs) Try not to. We're reopening Friday in Texas, so I'll sit here inside and watch other strangers hug.